Hello, Buddhist geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I just wanted to share a brief thought before you start with this week's episode. Many of you may not realize this, but Buddhist Geeks is a 501c3 educational nonprofit. We made the switch to being a nonprofit at the end of last year after a couple years of planning this, and we're really happy to have switched to an organizational form that seems to fit our mission and vision much more. And over the next month, we've set a goal to raise $20,000 up front, as well as a recurring amount of $1,000 a month through our Patreon account. And we're using this money to help fund our core operations. And if you want to learn a little bit more about what we're using the money for, what we're up to, what we're doing, the kind of impact that we've been having, you can go to BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash give and check it out. And on that page, um, you could make a small recurring gift. This could be as little as $2 a month. Uh, Or if you're in a position to make a more significant tax-deductible contribution, you can also give uh, a one-time amount there. So again, this is at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. We really appreciate your support. Um, As long as we have it, we're going to continue to do our best to push the edge on exploring how Buddhism in the 21st century can really serve one another, can really shine a light on each other. And uh, again, we just really appreciate you tuning in to listen to uh, these explorations and also for your support. Take care. Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent, and I'm here today in Boulder, Colorado. I'm uh, actually in a room that's familiar. I've been here once before, and sitting in front of someone who uh, also is familiar, and I'm here today with Reggie Ray. Uh, Reggie, um, it's really good to have you on the show again, and uh, more importantly, to be here and talk to you. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you. So, um, you know, we've had you on the program a couple times uh, to talk about various things. We talked about Buddhist saints in India at one point, uh, and then I think last time we talked about Mahamudra and the Modern World program that you were working Mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. And it's been a few years, uh, so I know you've been busy you know, deepening your own practice, coming up with new stuff, rediscovering old things. Um, and I wanted to talk to you today about some of the stuff that I've been following and really curious about in terms of how you're teaching and what kinds of things you're exploring. Mm-hmm. So one is Shikantaza. I wanted to explore that with you. And the other is this uh, sort of conception of the five yanas. Um, so that, that's a little preview of mm-hmm. the kind of thing I wanted to talk to you about. Mm-hmm. So... I was listening to a podcast uh, a couple months ago. I was driving home, and I was listening to you talk about, I think at a Datun, about Shikantaza. And uh, it, it struck me because I've done a little bit of training in the Zen tradition and always found that practice to be like kind of like the most stripped down, like straightforward, simple, but like un- uh, impossible to understand exactly how it works <laughs> um, technique. And so when I heard you talking about it, I got kind of excited 
uh, to hear that, that that was something that you were teaching and exploring. And it sounded like also exploring in your own practice. Um, you mentioned having just gotten back from doing like a month or, or more of, uh, of just sitting, of just, mm-hmm. just being. So I wanted to ask you a bit about that. Um, maybe the first question is, uh, what, what is Shikantaza in, term, in terms of how, how you're approaching it, teaching it, practicing it? What, what is it? Um, Shikantaza, of course, is uh, really central to Zen Buddhism, as you mentioned. And within Tibetan Buddhism, over the years, I've noticed that there's a lack of precision in terms of the way in which the body is used and posture is used at the lower levels. And it's interesting, when you practice at a higher level, and particularly when you do what's called the six yogas of Naropa, then the way you hold your body becomes incredibly important to your state of mind, and it's very, very highly emphasized. And the main point in the six yogas of Naropa, which is this yogic, advanced yogic practice, is your central channel, or what I call the back line, meaning that there's a corridor of awareness that runs up just inside your spine, and that becomes the reference point for your whole meditation. You know, you need to learn how to open that up and sit within it, and then your experience can unfold in a very uh, free and unobstructed way. In order to do that, you have to hold your body very still. And so I was practicing that way myself, but within the Tibetan tradition, there isn't really very much uh, said about that until you get to this much higher level. And I was um, very, very... Uh, intrigued by the use of the back line in Zen, in Shikantaza, because, because of course in Shikantaza it's uh, the very first instruction you're given is your back has to be straight. Now that sounds, uh, it sounds kind of uh, almost simplistic, and a lot of the Zen instructions that you read about in books or you get in the beginning do seem to be just, you know, very physical your um, straight back and, you know, feel that your top of your head is lifting, uh, your chin is down, and don't move. And yet, um, to me, that actually is the container for the most effective kind of meditation. And the kind of meditation that, um, you know, exists in Tibetan Buddhism, you know, at this higher level. So, uh, I started looking at videos, and of course, my own experience has included uh, study with a Zen teacher, Koben Shino Roshi. Um, in the last years of his life, he lived at uh, the same place I lived, and we spent a lot of time together. So I began to feel that in my own students, um, there was too much distraction and too much wandering mind and too much fidgeting and too much uh, kind of uh, impulsive activity all over the cushion. And... Uh, I felt that Shikantaza might really help us. And so I began exploring Shikantaza. And then the practice really unfolded for me. I spent um, actually three months in retreat in Hawaii practicing Shikantaza um, a year and a half ago, really exploring it. And um, I was, in a way, blown away by the, the power of the practice. 
Once I incorporated the understanding that I had from the Tibetan practice into the Shikantaza posture, uh, very, very effective, very powerful, and very wonderful. We could talk about it a little bit if you'd like. About, I'd love, yeah, about no, the I mean, you're, you're, it's like you're teasing me with that uh, description. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the one of the interesting things about Zen is they don't tell you very much um, about what you might experience, and I respect that. I, you know, I think that's uh, it's a very important upaya. But I also know from studying with Trungpa Rinpoche that you need to give people enough of an intellectual understanding so that when their, their experience begins to fill out, they have some way to hold it in their mind and to understand it. So with that in mind, I developed a, um, a much more nuanced, I'd say detailed and nuanced Shikantaz instruction than we might normally find in Zen. And again, it's one that integrates the Tibetan uh, experience, you know, into this uh, wonderful uh, posture. So, do you want me to tell you what? Go through the stages a little bit. Would yeah, you like that? Please, please. Well, the key point um, that is made in Zen, and I'm talking both now about, uh, you know, Japanese Zen and also American Zen, is that. The practice really is about being completely with your body and that the body itself becomes your home and your reference point. And any kind of thinking is not uh, welcome. It's not that it's unwelcome, but it's a very, it's very, very, I would say it's thoroughly, a thoroughly somatic practice. So, you, the first instruction is straight back. Well, what does that mean, you know, to us? It means that the more you put your awareness along your back line, the more you begin to awaken to what's known in Hindu yoga and Tibetan Buddhism as the central channel. It's in Taoism, it's the central meridian, the core meridian. And you begin to discover that there's actually a corridor of space there, a corridor of awareness that's open and empty. And you, you can affect the feeling of the openness of that corridor by the way you hold your body. And if your body is bent, it's not going to be open. But if your body is too tight, it's not going to be open if you're too tense. So you have this uh, challenge you know, in this step one of the Shikanta's instruction, to develop a, a feeling of openness along your spine and of your basic mind, your fundamental awareness, and to have that awareness not just in one place, but along your whole spine, from your perineum up to the top of your head. And the, the way in which you find the correct posture is actually by being within that awareness. And then you can adjust your body around it and hold your body in certain ways. So that's step number one. And then all the rest of the um, instructions, both in, in Zen Buddhism and also the way we do it, really enhance that feeling of space along the back line. So, you know, you're told, um, let, uh, have the feeling that the top of your head is rising. And what that does is it, it kind of pulls open 
the corridor of space. And then you drop your chin, which opens the corridor of space in the upper back and through the neck to the top of the head. And then you allow your ears to travel back over your shoulders. So that um, even further opens and then you open the back of your neck. You have the feeling that the back of your neck is opening. And all of this, um, it's very, very interesting because where we hold our awareness in our body has a huge impact on how much discursive thinking we're going to be uh, afflicted with. So if your awareness is toward the front of your body, which it normally is for most of us, then we're thinking, thinking all the time. But if your awareness is really along the back line, there is no thinking going along in the back line. So by being uh, resting most of your attention along the back margin of your body, right uh, in alignment with the spinal column, the mind comes into a state of stillness. And when the mind comes into a state of stillness, then it's almost as if the posture is holding your experience. You're not thinking about your experience. I mean, you still have experience. You have achy knees and you have you know, random thoughts that come and go and feelings and there's always a certain atmosphere in your body, a certain kind of feeling. But when you're resting in the back line, it's just as is and, and there's no um, development of thought around the practice. You're, you're simply resting in a non-conceptual state and allowing things in your experience and in your life to be as they are. So it's very, you know, and that's where the journey is made. You know, the journey is not, people don't change through thinking about things, they change through experience. And what we're doing here is we're stripping away the overlays and the impediments to experiencing our own state of being in a very naked way. And I love Shikantaza because it, uh, it permits that, it allows it. And there's one other instruction that I know a lot of uh, Zen practitioners struggle with, uh, which I find really uh, quite amazing, and that's the instruction, don't move. Because what we notice when we practice is that when we, we have a painful thought, we move, or when we have a painful feeling, we move, or when, when some impulse comes up, we move. And the reason we move, it's not because we have to, but it's because the something is coming up that's very painful and we're sort of wincing and we're trying to get away from it. And what happens when you sit for your 40 or 45 minutes of your session and you don't move, you get a chance to see the impulsiveness come up and you sit within your body. The impulsiveness makes a journey, you sit within your body and the impulsiveness dies away and you sit within your body. And a minute ago, it seemed like you absolutely had to get up and make that phone call or you absolutely are gonna to have to say this really uh, you know, angry retort to somebody uh, that hurt your feelings. And then it just goes away and it's gone. And that, that's an unbelievable lesson for, for all of us, you know, that actually no matter how compelling the impulsive need is felt to be, if we sit with it, it changes and it goes away. And a lot of times it'll flip over into its opposite. For example, as you know, you know, anger, um, when you sit with it in this way, can flip over into actually 
a feeling of appreciation and tenderness, which is uh, is quite shocking, you know, for some of us. I tend to be a little on the edgy side and a little on the um, irritated side. And, you know, for me, it's always quite a shock when that, that flip happens and I find myself um, in a very different space, just in a matter of, uh, you know, a few moments. So Shikantaza is... Um, for me, it's the baseline of, uh, of our meditation now. And we do a lot of things with it. And um, there are a lot of ways to develop the interior space of Shikantaza and to develop um, a much bigger sense of relaxation, which is often the problem you know, in Zen practice. People have told me that uh, you never... It, it's really a very advanced place you know, before you can really relax. But I'm teaching people, you know, fairly early on how to relax within the posture and still be faithful to it. Mm. So, yeah, I, I, uh, it's been a wonderful discovery, you know, for me. Yeah, no, it's, I'm sort of reflecting as you describe that and thinking about some experiences like on Sashin where most of the relationship I had to the posture was pain. Pain, right. You know, pain in the knees, pain in the back. Mm-hmm. And there, in those moments, like it was valuable to sit with pain, but there was for sure not a whole lot of relaxation. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I'm curious if pain, in working with pain, is is that part of how you kind of approach the posture, or is that even an issue if if you're if you're sitting in a way that uh, is faithful to that sort of open quarter that you're describing? Well, you know, of course, the the pain. Pain is part of sitting, and uh, there's physical pain. There's, uh, but the psychological pain, you know, to me is actually the more distressing. It's the claustrophobia. It's the um, the feeling of timelessness when you're in the middle of a shikantaza session, and it's it's just like you think it must be over, and only five minutes has gone by, you know. And it's very very important. I think, you know, that's, that's why I like Shikantaza, because it actually puts you in a place where you can explore pain. You know, this is one of the, I think, the gifts of uh, the Tibetan tradition is you're always exploring whatever is going on. It's not a matter of just sitting through it, but it's a matter of what is the nature of this pain that I'm feeling? What is the nature of this claustrophobia? One thing we do, which is, is probably a little bit different uh, from some of the Zen teachers, is I tell people... If you're experiencing a pain that actually feels hurtful to your body, you should move. If you get a cramp, if you begin to get a certain kind of joint pain, and you know we all know what that is, and you feel like you're actually hurting your body, you should move. But most of the time, that's not what's going on. And so most of the time, we're just kind of uh, sitting there and, and exploring things. But I think, as you know, in the Tibetan tradition, particularly in uh, Dzogchen, Mahamudra Dzogchen, there's an emphasis on uh, naturalness. So, you know, my instruction is be within the shikantaza posture, but in a natural way, in a way that feels natural and open. And rather than trying to jam your back into a sort of a certain kind of a straightness, open your central channel and see what, you know, how to do that. Because the only way to send, open the central channel is through both alignment and relaxation at the same time. So. There's a little more emphasis, I'd say, on the inner experience of the posture, um, you know, the way we do it. Uh, so many questions coming to mind uh, as you're describing this. Um, 
One, one of them has to do with um, b- body work. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, I can just remember, you know, first sitting and having some real kind of structural issues in my body, which actually seemed to prevent being able to sit straight. Yeah. And um, I've heard you talk about body work as a useful complement to practice. Mm-hmm. Do you find that that kind of relates to or connects with this practice of shikantaza and the kind of straight back? Um, very much so. Uh, you know, the, um, we have, you know, two options for our human experience. We have, uh, the, what Tibetan Buddhism calls the, uh, direct non-conceptual experience of the Soma. The, um, you know, the nakedness of uh, sense perceptions and the feeling of our body and the, uh, what uh, in focusing they call the felt sense. But it's, it's very somatic, it's, it's feeling and sensing directly what our life is. And then there's the um, processing knowledge, knowledge that is post-labeling, uh, compartmentalizing, categorizing, judging, evaluating of the left brain. And, you know, for Buddhism, left brain experience is, I mean, if we want to talk about it neurobiologically, left brain experience is samsara. It's constantly putting labels on things and constantly evaluating and constantly strategizing and constantly trying to manipulate um, our experience, which... uh, the more it's dissociated from our actual experience, the more we suffer, you know, the more it becomes this sort of delusional world in and of itself. So, you know, to me, the whole process of realization is coming into the knowledge of the body. And a lot of people don't really understand that. You know, they say, well, how can that be? The body's physical. But if you read Jill Bolte Taylor's book, which I've been talking about, you know, forever, her experience when her left brain was totally knocked out, her left brain thinking mind was totally knocked out by her stroke, was that her body actually was a field of awareness. That's fundamentally what her body was. It wasn't a physical thing. And um, the more she came in, the more she found herself in her body, the more she had a sense of inner illumination and peace and understanding and love. And that is the, you know, that is a kind of uh, very helpful example that shows us the way in which the body itself actually is the arena of realization. And the thinking mind is useful, but only in a secondary position. So body work is, um, I think it's really essential. And, And by body work, I would include pretty much everything people do, you know, around the body. I'd include you know, massage and rolfing. I would include acupuncture and acupressure, um, proper diet, um, Feldenkrais, um, Hakomi, you know, all the things that are seeking to open the body and um, reduce the barrier between our conscious mind and our somatic awareness and create much more of a sense of flow between our conscious and our unconscious. All of that kind of work is, uh, I've personally found to be enormously helpful 
in terms of uh, supporting, enhancing, and encouraging shikantaza. Cool. Thank you. That make, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's funny too because when you're describing, I don't know if you said this or if I just heard this, but when you're describing the practice of shikantaza, I almost got the sense that when you're when you are resting in that non-conceptual embodied awareness, that in some way it's almost like the body starts to teach you or like the, like the practice kind of takes on a life of its own and things happen. Is that, is that an accurate That's perfect. intuition of absolutely, what happens? Absolutely, totally. Somebody asked uh, Dido Lurie, uh, a very uh, wonderful American Zen teacher who died recently, um, okay, you do shikantaza, you're sitting, you're not moving, you're totally in your body, you're not exiting into discursive thought, then what? And he said, then nothing. That's where the journey happens. And well, what do you do? We wait. What do you wait for? We wait for the transformations. Hmm. And it, it's what you're saying, that, that once you are really within your body and within your experience, the transformations unfold by themselves. And that's actually how transformation occurs. As long as you're meddling with your discursive mind, transformation is going to be held up. So, yeah, you know, the magic really begins to unfold when you're within the body. I think, you know, for all of us who are uh, very therapeutically sensitive, that whole uh, concept that the way to change is to get out of the game, it's, 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 it's counterintuitive, you know, it doesn't make sense to people. But it, it's true, you know, you, you as, as they say in Zen, uh, set aside all external involvements. It means whatever you're thinking about, whatever you're invested in, whatever you're worried about, let it go. Let the 10,000 things be. Give it up and just rest within your body and then the journey happens. I think for a lot of people that's, that's tough to get around, but you try it and you realize, wow, is, this is true. This actually works. This is actually how you do it. But it, it's interesting because it runs against everything in our culture, doesn't it? You have to manage and manipulate and control and get the right technique. And it turns out that that is actually what keeps us in a state of suffering and confusion, that kind of approach. Yeah, and it's uh, just occurring to me that there's another slippery thing, which is, you know, the kind of trying to do that non-doing or, you know, it's like that subtle sense of letting go of the impulse impulses or letting them be suddenly mm -hmm. becomes this activity that one is doing that mm -hmm. prevents trusting what's emerging and going with it. Mm -hmm. You know, like actually, like I heard Shinzen Young talk about riding the flow mm -hmm. of impermanence, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I wonder if that if that's part of the path to or part of this practice. I, I've certainly felt it for myself that, you know, just as an example, sitting and feeling really cold, you know, and there's one option, which is to just sit with the cold. Mm -hmm. And then, but there's some context in which the, the, the other option is to rise up and close the window, yeah. you know, yeah. and that could be the really appropriate response in that mm -hmm. situation. Maybe mm -hmm. not if you're just doing shikantaza, but you know what I mean, that there's, there's some wisdom that requires a move, an action or a, a doing. Very much so. I mean, I think, I think what we're talking about here is we need to get our money's worth out of whatever is happening. And in the case of the window, 
let's say you're doing a session of shikantaza, and generally the instruction is don't move. And, you, you know, you're by yourself. Nobody's going to know. So, but, and it is freezing, and it's really distracting. So how do you get your money's worth out of that? You, one thing is you can't, this is a very important point, you can't let go. The ego cannot let go of itself. You can't do it. And you cannot, um, the ego cannot boycott impulse. You know, you can't have the conscious, deliberate um, intention to be open. It's not going to work. And that's why the body is so important, because what you do is whatever is happening, it's freezing cold. Okay, maybe I shut the window, but first, you go to the back line, you give up the thinking, and you give up the investment in doing something, and you just rest in the back line. For a couple of minutes, you rest in the open space. And what's happening is you're co-opting your executive function and you're using it to put yourself into the back line of your body where there is no thinking. So it's interesting. And then you sit until the impulse dies away and the freak out dies away and the investment dies away. Then you get up and shut the window. But you got your money's worth out of the experience. You see what I mean? Sure, sure. It makes me think too of uh, you know, addictive patterns. Yeah. You know, uh, they're, they're so challenging to deal with when they're arising, when they're actually coming up. Um, so this sounds like when you're talking about impulse, you know, and, and letting impulses come and go, you know, that seems like uh, could be a useful way to work with those kind of patterns. Very much so. Um, you know, in this day and age, you know, as a teacher, I run into in myself and other people, all kinds of addictions, you know, eating and alcohol and drugs. And uh, some people come in and, you know, they're stuck on pornography, shopping, working, um, relationships, sex, you know, it's endless. And this is, um, you're exactly right. I mean, this uh, technique provides a great way to work with them because what you do what I instruct people to do is, let's say you have an eating disorder and you get that, uh, and in my opinion, if you're human, you have an eating disorder. It just depends what it is. <laughs> um, give yourself like three minutes. You know, you have this voracious desire, you're gonna die if you don't open the fridge and eat the cake this second, you're gonna die. You know that feeling, it's like panic. I know it well. You can't breathe. And so what I'll say is, and what I do myself is, give yourself three minutes, sit down, and after the three minutes you get to eat the cake. But give yourself three minutes and just do a little shikantaza and relax, feel in your body, feel very, um, very strongly your back line, and the openness at the back margin of your somatic awareness, you know, the corridor of space. Be there and then open into your mid-body and feel exactly what that addictive hunger is like. Work with it and explore it. And when the three minutes is up, you can go eat the cake. And what happens, I think, for all of us is we learn things. Every time you do that, you learn something. And so the um, dismantling of addiction on the one hand, it's, it's a slow process, but it's one that happens with understanding. And you begin to really gain insight into yourself. 
You know, Buddhism deliberately um, exploits, I, I think eating might be one of the most basic addictions of, for all humans. And it's interesting how Buddhism works with that and plays with it. And, you know, they, as you probably know, in, uh, in most of the Asian traditions, you don't eat after lunch, you know, if you're a monastic person or a, a yogi. And I've tried it. And basically, you spend a lot of time thinking about food and then really feeling hungry and feeling you're going to die and then not being hungry at all for hours. And then it comes back again and you begin to realize hunger actually isn't, it's not physical really. I mean, it is physical, but there's so much more to it than that. And then, it, and, and then you know, through exploring that, uh, the urges and the, the hunger, you become a little bit more free of it. And it doesn't have quite the, the addictive hold that, um, you know, it did previously. So it's very, very interesting, you know, really when you're working with addiction, you're working with the ego because the ego is always hanging on to something, right? So it's, it's not even, working with addiction isn't really any different than just basic meditation. And I, I like that you sort of highlighted so many of the different things that we struggle with. And I, I guess for a long time, I sort of had the, what feels like a misconception of like the point of practice is to not be addicted to anything or, you know, uh, and maybe that's an, asp perhaps that's an aspiration, but as a reality, it's like so far from my reality that it, it seems like a whole nother level of suffering to presume that this is how, how it should be. And yet, you know, what you're saying, it, it feels like a paradox in a way. It's like on the one hand, working with it, learning from it, there yeah. is some sort of dismantling process that yeah. can happen. Mm -hmm. But like you said, it could happen over long periods of time. Mm -hmm. um, that, that feels very paradoxical uh, to me. And I notice other people, uh, practitioners I know, struggling with uh, how to relate to addiction Mm -hmm. and what role it plays in practice. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, going from the extreme of being completely righteous and, uh, you know, about, about certain things that I don't do, yeah. but simultaneously being addicted to other things, yeah. including meditation and the states of meditation, to, like, just complete hedonistic, you know, quote-unquote tantra or something. Um, I don't know if you've noticed those extremes or been in them. Like, <laughs> but uh, that seems like just unendingly complicated and challenging. Well, I, I feel um, a lot of sympathy for our human condition. And, um, you know, sometimes I'll go into uh, the grocery store, Whole Foods, you know, where they have these snacks, and pretty much everybody is, like, they're snacking on things and they're taking them off the shelves. And w what we're all doing is we're trying to feel better. And... Um, you know, that, that attempt to feel better is, it's very fundamental in all mammals and, and probably reptiles. I think reptiles are a little harder to, to understand, but all mammals just, they want to feel pleasure because pleasure is associated with existence and life wants to live. Life doesn't want to die, it wants to live. That's the nature of life. So I see everybody walking around trying to feel better and I feel so sympathetic because no one's out of it. Even if you're meditating, you're still trying to feel better. And totally. that's a kind of addiction, you know, addiction to meditative states or, 
you know, even the thinking process, why is it so hard for us to set aside our thinking? Because we're addicted to it. Oh, yeah. That's like maybe the ultimate addiction. It is the ultimate addiction. <laughs> so, I don't know, I, I personally take kind of a, a sort of neutral view of the whole addictive thing. I think it's just, it's part and parcel of being alive. And, you know, it's how we survive, too. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.